Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning, and I hope you are encouraged by worship so far, especially as we turn in our Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 to 24. This is God's word for us this morning. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festival gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word in the blood of Abel. Please pray with me. God, our good Heavenly Father, you have brought us this morning to your word, to hear these truths revealed in this pastor's letter preached to his church to encourage, to equip, to turn them to fear to a better and abiding faith. So I pray that you would be at work this morning in this short time we have together and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So again, the context that we've been sticking with throughout the book of Hebrews is this preacher's letter, in a sense, his written down sermon encouraging this congregation to press on to live daily by faith, especially when it seems harder and harder, when persecution or suffering or different things would lend themselves to them shrinking back, to saying, no longer worth it, I can't abide. Or even for them to look back to what they had in the Old, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and think we just need to go back to what was more tangible for us rather than press on. In other words, here in this specific verse, the author is taking us through how God has shown the people of faith through the hall of faith, all these examples throughout the Old Testament and even into their own cloud of witnesses before them today, how God leads us through by faith, through trials and suffering. And God does this as a good heavenly father. Then as we get to this passage, he's going to compare and contrast two places, two heavenly mountains in a sense, Mount Sinai with the Israelites in the Exodus and the heavenly mountain, Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem set on a hill. And the point that he's trying to get us to see is my sermon in a sentence, that when we see with faith, it turns the fear of trespass into a reverent thrill of worship with the right motive, the right motivation to obey. The faith 
that the Spirit plants in us and dwells in us and nurtures in us, that faith turns any fear into the thrill of right worship. Let's start off what he says in verse 18 through 20 with a voice in the tempest. This is these rich sensory details drawing us as an audience into exactly what the vivid description in Exodus 19 and 20. There's this picture of the firestorm, the volcano, the trumpet blast, and this hurricane of terror. Let me quickly go back there if you don't have recollection. In the middle of the Exodus, how terrifying this was for the people of God. In Exodus 19, 16, Moses records this about the people. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. But this isn't their first time of seeing most of that. They've seen the God of Israel deliver them out of Egypt. They've seen this pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. They've seen these things, but now they tremble. Verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then later in verse chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 18 to 21, he says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off. And they said to Moses, You, you Moses, you go and speak to us. We will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. But Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Please catch that really important distinction. And I'm going to unpack this a little bit in a minute. But he's saying, don't fear for the wrong reasons. And don't let that wrong fear turn you away from God. But let the right, holy, reverent, awe-filled fear rightly of the Lord, let that motivate you that you may not sin, that you may worship rightly. Here's a really important detail. As we see the author of Hebrews now really tightly contrast the people's response do the same exact thing that Moses saw, and his response is very different. Yes, it says a little bit farther down in verse 21 of Hebrews chapter 12 that even Moses trembled with fear, but his fear is a different fear. His fear, he actually says later on in Deuteronomy 9, you can read that his fear is that the people would be destroyed. The people's fear is that something bad is going to happen to us. Moses doesn't fear for himself. And I think what this important insight is, in all these vivid details of fire and tornado and trumpet blasts and this voice that shakes the very mountain, 
the people have not seen enough to know that God is for them in the real deep, significant, and personal way that Moses has seen that. So they have a far-off, distant fear. What they know, the little bit that they know, is fueling their fear. What Moses knows about a God who comes near is a God who lights bushes on fire. But they're not consumed because that really important detail, God does not need to draw fuel from our fears. He in is in and of himself the God who is. I am who I am. He doesn't need any of that from us. And Moses is starting to see that in a real and significant, even though terrifying way, that this God is for him. And he's for his people. Not because of anything that they've done to achieve or to perform or earn it, but because he, as a good God, has promised, I will be their God. I will be for them. I'm covenanting myself to them that these promises will stand. He's showing us that because Moses knows the character of God, this self-centered, maybe irrational fear is disposed by what he knows in relationship to a good, perfect, holy, righteous, just merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, loving Father. And that fear is turned to right, healthy motivation. Now, just taking a step back, because then I want to get into what that means for us. For the Hebrew audience, they're tempted. Their hesitation is if I press on, trying to lean in with faith to the situations that are in our daily lives, it's going to cost us something us as the community that they're seeing themselves in. And the encouragement of this preacher is to not shrink back. Don't shrivel up with wrong fear for a second. But he's not saying, erase your fears. He's saying, see your fears rightly. Why I think this is important for us right now and I want to unpack this a little bit more specifically with what Moses is fearing and why I think that's important for us to dwell on for a little bit, is not only do we need to not be afraid in all of life, but we need to see how a right and healthy fear impels us, launches us, motivates us rightly to come and not just sit in chairs on a Sunday morning, but to see all of life as a thrilling opportunity to worship reverently and awe-filled a righteous, loving God. That's verse 18 to 20. All of these details drive, I think, this comparison to the people's response. They beg in verse 19 that no further message be spoken because they could not endure Moses hears the word and he is terrified at the sight. The same thing that the people are seeing. Maybe even closer up because he's like at the foot of the mountain getting ready to go up into this fire nado. But he says, I tremble with fear because of them. So what is fear? Let me take a little uh, short tangent to try to 
unpack a little bit about what this fear actually is because some fear is right and good. There's actually a really healthy fear. Sometimes it's uh, a rational fear. A, rational, not irrational. Uh, for example, fire. Many of us should have a healthy respect for fire. I should, I should know that there's some distance that needs to happen between myself and fire. Some people that have been around fire know, know this to be very true. And fire in the right parameters in a fireplace or in a solo stove or in a uh, Smith Cutter supervised fire pit, is, it's a really safe and actually good thing. We get to roast marshmallows and boy, aren't they yummy. Right, fire in that place safely is not something that I should have a rational fear of. I should enjoy that. It gives warmth. It gives a nice golden crusty roastedness to the marshmallows. It's good. Take that same exact fire, launch it across the hillside in a forest fire, and it's devastating and terrifying, and I should be very afraid, especially if the wind is whipping that up and pushing it faster than we can control. So fire is one of those examples, and you can think of many, many other things that you should be rightly fearful of, have a healthy fear of, and a lot of that stance of healthiness, it depends on how much you know, and usually that knowledge is in a real experience of it. You've stuck your finger on one of those hot coals that didn't maybe look red and burning still, but it's hot enough that it burns. You get that ouch. That's helpful. That's experiential knowledge that helps to fuel, okay, I'll stop those puns, but it helps to inform rightly your fears. That's a good thing. But behind some of the fears that we have is the reason why we fear. What about any of those other avenues, any of those other aspects or details or situations or people or objects or things in life do I fear? Here the author of Hebrews is putting this story that they would well, well know of Israelites' exodus from Egypt. He's placing that in vivid detail to get us to think past just the experiential fears to think why we fear. What do we do with that fear? Where does that fear push us? Where does it motivate us when we fear? And otherwise, in other words, he's getting us to look at our spiritual lenses, the lenses of faith, put those lenses on and see, spiritually speaking, what do I fear? Generally speaking, fear is put into three main categories. Fear of self, what could happen to me? Clearly, that's the Israelites' main issue. Fear of others. What can man do to me? Whether that's man in a careening car going down the interstate, or whether that's man, uh, a, a robber coming into my home. Any of those fears of others, but then especially spiritually speaking, we need to wrestle with what does it mean to fear God? I don't have time now, but there's many, many places, Old and New Testament, where that phrase, the fear of the Lord, is used time and time again, not to say erase any fear from your thoughts, but to say have a right fear. It's actually, and should be, the fear of God should be much more terrifying than a lot of times we give it 
credit for. But this author, and we should not stop there, because that fear cannot just be a one snapshot moment. It has to be the video that is moving us someplace. We need to fast forward a little bit, in other words, and see what that fear is motivating us towards. In other words, if I can just frame it this way and then we'll move on, in our spiritual lives, if we ask ourselves in my heart where the basis of fear is, what about self, others, or God do I fear? Oftentimes, if we pull on those threads enough, we find that it's more the good things that I've made into an ultimate thing. My own safety or security, my own comfort or convenience, others' view of me, their, their idea of reputation, or if I'm important in their eyes, or if things are going well, if I'm going to be embarrassed, or anything else. Interestingly, the most common fear today, I looked this up again just to see if it's still going with generations, is public speaking. I mean, that includes a lot of those. Fear of self, fear of others, fear of reputation, how that portrayal is happening. Maybe we care too much in the wrong directions and that's motivating us for the wrong desired outcome. There's a fear of the future. What might happen? What if this does happen? What if that doesn't happen? There's those fears of others that turn into the close relationships we have. What if they don't make me feel this way in 10 years? What if I lose them because of something? What if they find out some truth about what's really in my heart? What if they turn away from me and find something else? Anything, in other words, that we've taken a rational, maybe healthy fear, made it ultimate, and turned it into an irrational, unhealthy fear, either in the wrong direction or to the wrong degree, that we now follow and maybe even you could say obey. Maybe even you could say worship. I think that's exactly the scene. If you look in between Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, you remember what the people are doing while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what they're doing? They're taking a healthy fear of this terrifying moment with the God of the universe, and they're turning it into their own controllable worship of a golden calf. Don't let that be too easily dismissed. Think. Pray. Ask God, what is ultimate that I fear so that he can do exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing and helping us to turn not from fear and blindly erase it to something else, but turn fear into the right kind, the right motivation of fear. Because when we learn that what is ultimate in my heart and is personal, it needs to turn us because that's who God is. He's not just a terrifying being out there. He's a personal God that has come to dwell with us so that we can learn to rightly fear and love and praise him. That is the direction that this author is going, if I can use this hinge. Sorry, Dave, I'm going to throw that at you. The last bit of Hebrews 12, the place that this author is driving in this whole section, 
wrapping up all of this hall of faith, what we're supposed to do with the lenses of faith to live daily in obedience and worship is this. He says, let us be grateful, verse 28 and 29 of Hebrews 12, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Don't miss, like the mountain was shaking. We're on that kingdom, we're in that kingdom, we cannot be shaken, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. He's not just putting that into a Sunday morning box. He's saying all of life, because you've seen the cloud of witnesses, you've seen the hall of faith, where all of these individuals did not limit worship to just what they did on a certain day. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For your God, our God, is a consuming fire. I'm hitting the brakes on that one. Because that is not where I thought he was going with that. Wait, wait, wait. There's lots that could be said about God that would really seem to draw my heart into worship a lot more than he's a consuming fire. Unless... Here's the hinge that gets us to turn in the comparison from Mount, Zion, sorry, from Mount Sinai, the Israelites in Exodus, to Mount Zion. The better comparison is that this all-consuming fire is for you. He's a personal God that is consuming in your relationship for your good as a good heavenly father that disciplines the sons whom he loves. And he will use that fire, like Peter says, as a refining fire. Oh, it might hurt. It might sting. It might burn. But in the hands of an all-powerful, just God, he's going to use his care, his compassion, his fervor, his zeal, for your good, always and eternally for your good. That's why I think in Paul's mind and his sense of this, when he's encouraging the Philippians, and we just briefly touched on this in, in Sunday school this morning, in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Why should I fear and tremble as I work out my salvation? Because it's work and it's that sanctification. It's not getting me in the kingdom. It's figuring out how I daily die to self and live for Christ on a moment-by-moment basis. Why am I supposed to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? For, because it it is God, the consuming fire God, who is for you. He's both willing and working not just to eat you by so he can maybe turn a frown into a little bit of a half smile. He's willing and working for his good pleasure. He's going to sing over you, y'all. He's going to enjoy, enjoy rejoicing over you. That consuming fire will be protecting you, will be preserving you, will be thrilling to you. That is the motivation. To look at fear and to say, I have an all-powerful God who treats me like a son and daughter. That cannot change. 
so I can press into it. Even the fire may burn me. All right, let's look at the mountain of God because this is where I want to pick up steam because that's exactly what the author is doing. He's launching into a bunch of ands, 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 and it's really beautiful, thrilling, and captivating. So here we go, verse 22 and 23. He says, in the mountain of God, this is what we've seen. You have not come to this blazing fire mountain that you thought you could touch. It's not touchable. He says, you've come to the mountain of Zion, the sitting of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What does he picture there? He pictures captivating worship. You've come, he's heaping on these glorious details of this is what you're going to be a part of. Check that. He uses the perfect tense. This is what you're already involved in. You're already there. You have come to this city the innumerable angels in festal gathering. They've put on their best. They're celebrating like they couldn't do anything else. And to the assembly of the firstborn, verse 23, don't miss this. This is so personal, but it includes all of us. It's a beautiful plural phrase. They're all gathered, all the firstborn, which is you and I, brothers and sisters, Why is it so beautiful that it's firstborn? Because that's who has been adopted into the heavenly family. They're given the title of firstborn to mean two important things. The firstborn all throughout Israel's history was given the double portion. They get twice as much as the best. And they are the ones that were redeemed by Egyptian firstborn. All of the Israelites' firstborn knew that they were set free because an Egyptian son died. You and I sitting here, all of us in this assembly of firstborn children, you have been set free from sin and brought into a good heavenly father's family because a firstborn has died, so you get to be in. Don't let that turn you from God. Don't let that mean fear that turns you away from trusting him. Let that mean everything that that drives you to the feet of a good father. That said, God, Father, you you would even give up your only son for me? And he keeps going. Those, uh, the assembly of the firstborn, they're just not proven to be firstborn because they all happen to have shown up at the right place at the right time. Whew, lucky for us. They're enrolled in heaven. They're written in the Lamb's book of life. It's documented, proven with the Lamb's blood that they are there. This is all designed to keep them, to keep this group, to keep this assembly, to keep you and I here today, to to keep us approaching God in the way that he has provided. Always leaning into him. And then it keeps going. The rest of verse 23. Who else is there? These angels in gathering, the assembly of the firstborn, all of us, they're enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. This is where it starts to get real and deep. The God who is to judge everyone because all will stand before the judgment seat of God. He 
is going to judge you and I and whoever God judges to be righteous, he, whoever he declares righteous on that day will be righteous. Whoever he declares to be wicked on that day will be, is, is, is determined, is, is judged. But see what he says the very next phrase. The God of the judge of all. What has he decided? He has brought in the spirits of the righteous who've been made perfect. He's judged them righteous and they've been made perfect. That's describing you and I. He, God, sees redeemed sinners as righteous. And so he brings you into his heavenly court to sit around his throne room. Because all of this lands at verse 24, the better word. Finally, the last heaped on detail is around this heavenly city is Jesus, who's the mediator of the new covenant. This has been one of the themes woven through all of Hebrews, that this is the better covenant because of a better mediator, because of a better priest, because of a better sacrifice, because of a better redeemer. And here he is, the the Jesus that we know as the mediator, the go-between, not just Moses, another man like you and I who was called to go up the mountain, but Jesus, God's very own son who came down to represent us to God and God to us. This mediator of the new covenant and to his sprinkled blood. What is the blood doing there? It's speaking. Jesus' blood speaks. Just like the voice that was booming through the trumpet on the mountain. Just like the voice that spoke to Moses. Just like the way that Moses was then to be the mouthpiece for God to speak to his people. This blood speaks but it speaks a better word. It speaks an enduring word. It speaks a truer word than the word that the blood of Abel spoke. If you go back to Genesis 4.10, what did Abel's blood say? What was it crying out of the very ground after Abel had been killed by his brother Cain? His blood was crying out for justice. God, let there be retributive, retributive. Let there be retribution on him. Let there be justice for the murder that happened. Jesus' blood does not scream for justice. It satisfies justice. Jesus' blood does not scream for God's retribution to be poured out anymore because it was finished. Jesus' blood cries out for you and I to receive mercy. You get mercy spoken to you that doesn't ignore justice. It actually shows it to be fulfilled, to be finally paid, satisfied on your and my behalf. So the better word that Jesus' blood cries is that justice, the justice of God has been satisfied. for you and I to come near. The beautiful picture then settles us onto that final scene that's going to launch us into the warning in the next section that the fear that this God 
who he is and who, what he's about for us should motivate us, should drive us to enjoy that God. It, it's, it's still fear, but it's a different aspect of fear. It's a reverent, awe-inspired, humble, it's not just knowing about God, it's knowing God personally and knowing that this awe-inspiring, fearful God is working for you. He's working in you. He's working through you. And he wants to draw you day by day into his presence. So let me apply a couple of these things this way as we wrap up. What have you heard in the voice of fear that you believe you cannot endure? What fear of self or fear of others or fear even of God motivates you or drives you away? Because that is not the right, reverent fear of God. Yes, perfect love casts out fear, but it does not erase fear. It turns fear into the right approach to a good God and Heavenly Father. Do you know this God? Have you actually looked into His Word, searched the Scriptures to see who this God is, to see Him at work for you and me, to see Him at work in this community, to drive you to obedience and right worship? Or does your fear keep you from God? Then on the flip side, how much does a right fear draw you in to God? How much does he draw you to the assembly of the firstborn? Look around to you, old and young. This is the people that God has brought you to. To encourage you. To ignite the right and healthy fear in you. And finally, do you know deeply, personally, relationally the God that has brought you near because of the blood of his own son? The sprinkled blood that speaks a better word not just out into the universe, but that word is spoken to you. To you personally. Do you know Jesus as your redeemer, as your firstborn son who was sacrificed to redeem you out of slavery to obedient worship? Do you know that Savior? Do you long to know him more? Do you long to be driven to know him more, to enjoy him more? That's hopefully why you're here. And I would plead with you, if you don't, to use the time that we have in the next few moments or at the end of the service to come up to talk to elder or on your way, hopefully a little less quickly out the doors, to ask somebody, help me know this Savior. And if you do know him and you're hesitant, if fears seem to linger in that unhelpful, irrational, distrusting way, then it is perfect that we have the Lord's Supper set before us. Because this is where we get to taste and see that the Lord is good. This is where we get to see that the Lord has set a table before us in the presence of our enemies so that we can come to him, so that we can be nourished by him, so that our fears can be turned toward him to enjoy him rightly. 
I want to close with this hymn by John Newton, who I think gets this. I pray that I get this more. He writes this to be a sung hymn, but I believe it's also appropriate to be prayed. So let us pray with this from John Newton. He says, Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has washed us with his blood. He has washed us with his own blood so that he has brought us near to God. Let that draw you to his supper now. I pray as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, let me pray for us as our worship team comes up now. God, you are so good to give us your word. I pray that as we get to continue on in worship of you, that you would lead us near, that you would draw us close, that you would turn a fear that distrusts into a fear that longs for for more. Because you're a good father who wants good things for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.